Episode 223 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the American former world number one tennis player turned top commentator, Tracy Austin. Tracy turned pro at just 15 and during her brilliant playing career she won 30 singles titles including two Grand Slams, the US Opens of 1979 and 1981. She won the first of those at 16 and remains the youngest US Open female singles champion. Tracy was ranked number one in the world for 21 weeks of 1980, the year she won the Wimbledon mixed doubles title with her brother John, making them the first brother and sister to win a Grand Slam title together. Tracy was also the youngest inductee into the International Tennis Hall of Fame at 29. A series of injuries and a serious car accident in 1989 prompted a premature retirement. But Tracy has gone on to become a highly respected expert on her sport. This interview took place at the time of Wimbledon 2021 and Tracy began by explaining how her life in tennis started. Vic Braden, he's passed now, but he was an iconic coach in the United States. He had uh, worked for Jack Kramer, former world champion in tennis. So Jack asked uh, Vic to find a, a place where he would start a club. So Vic was the manager at the Jack Kramer Tennis Club. My mom was the pro shop manager because uh, they had known each other from playing tennis together. And Vic, who has a great flamboyant, bubbly personality, would have junior clinics on the mornings and the weekends, Saturday and Sunday. And he would just, he made it fun. Vic, he's, a, as I said, an iconic coach in the U.S., known for making tennis fun. I remember those mornings with lots of laughter, bunch of kids you know, running around, playing playing, hitting balls, but also doing relay races, hitting balloons with our tennis racket. It wasn't all about just the right grip and, and the right form. It was important that uh, he made it fun. How much of a history of tennis was there in your family? It's extraordinary you started so incredibly young. Well, I'm the youngest of five kids, and my mom started playing tennis at uh, a local park after her fourth child and actually met up Vic and my mom and Vic won a mixed doubles tournament together when she was pregnant with me. They won a tournament together when she was pregnant and then when Vic was at the Jack Kramer Tennis Club as the manager, he had these, these junior clinics and I, I guess the important part is that you can tell that I, I love tennis right from the beginning. I, I love the, the challenge and, and the joy of, of trying to trying to hit the ball and, and, you know, the athletic part of it. What were the names and occupations of your parents? My mom was Jeannie, and she was the pro shop manager at the Jack Kramer Tennis Club. Yeah. My dad was George Austin, and he was um, a nuclear physicist. Oh. And how much of your childhood was taken up with tennis? Well, my mom worked as the pro shop manager. She was there six days a week. 
So I was there six days a week because the club started about two weeks after I was born is when it was started it was up and running. So it was it was a great place to you know, be raised because my mom was always there, so I was either running around with friends, playing hide and seek, you know, playing in the, the sand lot that we had there, you know, the kind of jungle gym type area or playing tennis. It was like I had fifty parents because I was I was there every day, all day and I knew everybody at the club. Have you ever wished you had a more regular childhood? I don't think there is a more regular childhood than what I had. It was absolutely fantastic as far as being at a tennis club with lots of people that uh, you know cared about me, loved me, and you know one of our one of five kids that played tennis. So I guess the point is, you could tell from the beginning it wasn't. I was starting at, at three years old to become the world number one. It was a, a family sport for us. We enjoyed it. It just happened that I took to it, and uh, you know, four out of five of us became professional, but it, it, that wasn't the plan. Whereas so many kids these days, it's, it is the plan right from the beginning. It, w it just kind of was organic, and it just worked out well. But So I, I couldn't have had a, a more enjoyable, I guess, childhood. Well, that's very nice to know. My mom was the most important person behind my success. And as I said before, she was there six days a week, so she was kind of the architect of how much I was playing with, who I was playing with. Actually, it's funny, I had my own little hallmark, like three by three calendar. I don't know if you have those, but they were tiny little calendars that I would call people to make my own matches. Starting when I was 10, she had five kids and a full-time job. So it was up to me to call, you know, Mrs. Johnson or Mr. Shoemaker and say, can you play Tuesday at four or whatever? So I became quite independent, very young. But I say that my mom was the, the architect because she was probably the smartest strategist that I ever had in more than any other coach as far as breaking down opponents' games, analyzing matches. And I think as I became more successful, she had a very calm demeanor, which was important because when I won the Open in 79, my life sped up very quickly. Yes. So she had, she was a tremendous sounding board, full of common sense. Also, the Los Angeles Tennis Club, which is one of the most iconic clubs in the United States as far as some of our most important tournaments were played there. We see you in you your, your trademark pigtails. Was that something that your mother Arranged for yours, it's simply a necessity because of keeping the hair out of your eyes while playing. The pigtails was just, I had a bunch of hair. <laughs> a lot of hair, and it was just comfortable. And uh, I imagine when you won your first slam or when you won your first uh, any kind of tournament, your parents would have been particularly emotional about it. My brother and I winning Wimbledon mixed doubles. So that was 1980 at Wimbledon, and... To win a, a major, particularly Wimbledon, with all of its history and, you, you know, you dream of, of winning Wimbledon someday, to win with a sibling is extra special and very emotional. And it was quite a, quite a journey. To, the year before, we had played together and we had lost. And, uh, you know, as far as these big wins, and then you start to think, wow, we're getting closer to, to the finish line closer to possibly winning the title and then when you're down a match point um, and then 
come through and, and win the title were just on cloud nine. Both of our parents were there the whole tournament, and a couple of our siblings were there. So every night it was dinner and kind of a, a recue of, of what happened that day. We, we beat Yvonne Gulagong and John Newcomb. We beat Virginia Wade and BJ Armitage. I don't know if you know these names. Of course, yeah. I used to work at Wimbledon, by the way, for 14 years. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. And then Betty Stover and Frew McMillan in the semifinals, which was a huge win because they were so fantastic in doubles. And then we saved a match point against Mark Edmondson and Diane Fomholtz in the finals. Yeah. And uh, do you feel so you, ha you had a special understanding with John on the court because you're siblings? Without a doubt. I think we were so comfortable with each other and we knew what to say to try to release some of the tension you know, or the pressure at, at big moments. We knew each other well enough to, to know what words would, would be helpful. And we, we became the first brother-sister team to win Wimbledon, mixed. And how did your siblings feel about you being the most successful among them? Were they always supportive or ever jealous? No, they were, I think because I was the youngest, you know, they'd already established what they were doing as far as either playing on the pro tour or, or jobs. And they were always supportive, and I, I don't think that, you know, particularly growing up, I was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 13, so it, it all actually playing exhibitions when I was eight against Bobby Riggs, nine, ten, it was, you know, I'd become famous very young, but when I was at home, I didn't over-talk about it, I stayed grounded, I, I think because I was the youngest of five, I, I knew that that was, that was important to just, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't let me get too big for my britches. Huh. What became of John and his tennis career? Um, John played for, you know, he had went over McEnroe and he had a, a very successful career, but then he became a director at, at a tennis club. Okay. Are you still the youngest ever male or female champion of any Grand Slam? No, not at the Grand Slam, but the youngest ever male or female at the U.S. Open. Right. And how do you feel about that? That must make you feel fantastic still. Yeah, it does. I think being the youngest is secondary. I think winning the U.S. Open comes to mind first, and, and the way that it unfolded as far as beating Martina and Navratilova in the semis, 6-7-5, 7-5, and then having to back it up and play Chris Everett the next day and, and winning 6-4, 6-3. So with those two you know, ladies that uh, were at the top of the game, I think I was seated three. I had beaten both of them before, so it wasn't like, it wasn't out of nowhere, but to play them back to back, and they have such different game styles. You know, Martina, the servant volleyer, Chris, the consistent baseliner. But you're right, to do it all at 16 years old, and now that I have kids that are, that are all older than that, I realized I was, I was very poised and, and very calm for such a, fearless, really, for such a, a, a big moment with so much on the line. Do you feel perhaps you were too young to fully appreciate your achievements at the time? I think, in, in a way, it all came so fast that I didn't understand the magnitude, and I think that was actually good because, uh, you, you know, I didn't feel overawed or by the situation as far as when I woke up that finals morning, I was playing Chris Everett and I needed to figure out a way to beat her. It wasn't all of the extra as far as if I win, I'm the youngest ever. You know, I had no idea how that moment of, of winning 
that's the moment that, that changed my life. Everyone dreams of winning a major, and it's a defining moment of a career that you've won a major. So the second one is, is wonderful when I won in 1981, but the first one is a life changer because, uh, you know, you just become so much busier with all the commitments, the endorsements, and six months later I became number one in the world. How prepared were you for all the fame and so forth that came with being a top sports champion? Well, as I said before, it started very young. You know, at eight, nine, I was playing exhibitions, so it, it really did. It might not seem from the outside, seem like it, it came gradually, but it did. So the preparation, you know, at 14, when I played Wimbledon for the first time, I played Chris Everett on, on center court, lost to her in the third round. That was a little overwhelming because I was so young, and as you know, the British press, you know, they wanted to follow my every move, and I was so young and so shy, but by 16, I was much better prepared for it. But, what? you know, what happened at 14 and 15 and even younger, that prepared me for the moment. What did you do with all the prize money you earned in those days? Did you spend it or save it? <laughs> I would assume, I, I wasn't keeping track of, you know, of every dollar, but some of it goes towards traveling, towards coaches, you know, and, and saving it, investments. Yeah, I, I wondered if your parents had perhaps put it aside for you, make a, you know, invest a big house or something. Well, what happens is, um, it all goes through your agency and then they figure out, you know, you obviously have to, there's, there's expenses involved, but then the rest is, is invested. Yeah. Is it fair to say that modern tennis champions are physically much bigger and stronger? And how much harder would your teenage self have found elite tennis today? The game has is, is changed in, in so many ways. First, with the physicality, the players in general are taller and you know traveling with trainers and with physios uh able to take much better care of their bodies and uh sure and the rackets are are, are better the strings are better so every every generation i think you know there's there's changes that come into play and obviously the grass at wimbledon has changed the grass is more firm so they're able to stay back at the baseline rather than serving a ball at almost every point so uh so yes, you are correct. May we talk about the Fed Cup winning team, 1979? That team stayed together. That exact team stayed together for winning the Fed Cup in Melbourne in 78 at Couillon on grass. This is Madrid in 79 on red clay right before the Italian Open. Yeah. And then we also, that exact same team won in Berlin in 1980. So three years in a row. Uh, you know, this was an incredible week to be a part of playing for your country. You know, tennis is an individual sport, and when before you play every match, they play, or at least during, before the final, they play the national anthem. And so you're, you're playing for your country, which is so much bigger than yourself. You're and also playing for a team, which is extremely exciting because as an individual, it's just you and, and your team, whether it's your, your parents or your coach or whatever. You know, now you're looking over and you've got Billie Jean King as your captain, who I idolized and did a book report on as a little girl. Um, Chris Everett, you know, is, is playing the singles and you're playing the singles. You're training together for 
nine, ten days. So this is Madrid in 1979, yeah. and we we beat Australia in the final. And a couple of weeks later, I won the Italian Open and stopped Chrissy's streak of 125 consecutive clay court matches. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot has to do with those ten days that that we all trained together. The practice was so uh, you know incredible with playing with, with practicing with top players that it prepared me well for for helping the team to win in Madrid and then winning the Italian Open a couple of weeks later. You'd normally have had to compete against your teammates here. How difficult did, Correct. You, how difficult did you find it to be rivals most of the time and teammates occasionally? Not difficult at all. It was wonderful to be teammates instead of having to compete against them. And to practice, obviously it was the best practice that you could have but then the dinners that we would go together and the laughs and the stories and the friendships that you build and the camaraderie again you don't get that on the regular tour and that's why fed cup was so so special that on top of playing for your country whether playing as a team or as an individual how often did your opponents resort to naughty tactics to try and put you off Mm-hmm. I don't remember too many naughty tactics. I mean, you've got lines people out there. There's not really, not much, no, not much you can do. Okay, but in your day, I don't recall any female players making noises when they hit the ball. How have you felt about that aspect of the modern women's game? Um, yeah, no, there's, you know, not grunt, there wasn't grunting. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to change because... The players have grown up. It's they, they almost think of it as a as a breath. Uh, the, the way it it helps them to hit the ball. So, you know, one of the biggest defender recently recently retired. So I, you know, I don't I don't. I, it's made a big deal of sometimes, but for, I think for the most part, it's it's fine. Okay, you don't think it's cheating then? Oh, cheating? No, no, not cheating. All right. Do you ever have reunions with your former tennis teammates, or do you just see them around all the time because of your job? Well, I think both. Uh, the WTA does a wonderful job of having reunions a couple times a year, and so they're usually at uh, Wimbledon and then one other tournament. Maybe One year it was at Stuttgart, other years it's been at Indian Wells. So the WTA actually does a really nice job of, of trying to keep the, the friendships alive because we all have so much in common we all have great memories but we've moved on with our lives it's nice to reconnect who are your best friends in tennis mm, who are my best friends I you know I don't really want to pick out one I don't want to really say I think I have a, a ton of friends and uh, that I that I keep in touch with names that you wouldn't even that you wouldn't even know but uh, again uh, very appreciative of the people, whether it was from juniors or whether it was from the pro tour, doesn't matter what age, you feel a, a connection because you know that they've worked just as hard, they've gone through similar situations, trials and tribulations, and, and they kind of understand you. Would you mind if we talk about the White House next? Um, sure. Which we think is 1981. We think it's the Davis Cup and Whiteman Cup teams. Could that be correct or was it Fed Cup? <laughs> Yeah, I think you're spot on. It's, it's interesting how you guys know that. You're correct. Um, that was at the White House, and 
this the one with John McEnroe and, and Ronald Reagan? Yeah, and we understand that Reagan said something very funny that day about wanting to take up tennis himself, but he couldn't get his horse off the tennis court. Was that correct? <laughs> that is funny. You know what's interesting about President Reagan was that obviously he was married to Nancy, and Nancy had a charity called Just Say No to Drugs. And yeah. every year for about five or six years, she had it at the White House tennis court. And so I got to know the Reagans very well, so much so that they sent Scott and myself a letter on our wedding day that we have framed about Nancy and President Reagan's, you know, secret to success for marriage. So getting to know President Reagan over those many times that I was able to, to be around him, he had an incredible sense of humor. He was very funny, a great storyteller. He always made everybody feel at ease. So that sounds exactly right. That one-liner that you just quoted sounds exactly right. He, he was an actor before he became president, so he had tremendous presence. He, he, you know, it was like a magnet. Everybody wanted to, to gravitate to him because he had such a great sense of humor and was a great storyteller. Yes, you're correct. He, he invited the winning Davis Cup and either Whiteman Cup or Fed Cup teams to the White House. Yeah. Okay, well, the Whiteman Cup, you were always beating the UK, weren't you? Um, <laughs> no, not true. <laughs> you were Well, we, they, they had to scrap it because we were always losing. Um, how many other meetings with presidents and trips to the White House have you had since? Jimmy Carter invited me. I was there a number of times with, with the Reagans, with the Bushes. I don't know. I've been, I've been to the White House many times. Mm. Many times, oh, yeah. And then also with George W. Bush. Were you ever interested in going into politics or even acting? No, 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 no. Definite no on both of those. Your playing career at the highest level came to a premature end due to back problems and sciatica. What do you attribute that to? Would that be from starting too young, perhaps? Um, I think, first of all, being smaller, uh, a few things. I think uh, it didn't help that I was a little smaller than others with my training style. My training style was to, to practice a lot in order to try to, to get the best out of, out of myself. And I think also just not understanding, you know, sports medicine has come a long way with my back. I went to five different specialists and nobody could figure out what was wrong. Whereas I think now it would be instantaneous. So it was that along with, I don't know if you've read about, I was in a car accident as well. Yes. So the combination of, of, of all of the above with, without a doubt stalled things. Do you mind reminding us of the car crash? Yeah, the car crash was August 3rd, 1989. I was in New Jersey playing and I was leaving my hotel when a guy ran a red light at 65 miles an hour and hit my side of the car, the front wheel well. Right. The fact that I'm still here, the fact that I'm able to still talk to you is a miracle because wow. when you think about going that fast and he hit my front left rear well, if he had half a second more, he would have hit my door, the driver's side door. Wow. And just to go back to you um, having to sadly quit tennis young, uh, early, how heartbroken were you at that? Extremely heartbroken. You, you know, you get up every day from the time you're a little girl with dreams and, and you know, you go after it every day as far as trying to compete and, and play and, and you're excited about 
what's coming up next, the tournaments and going after your dreams, your goals. And, and then it, it stops. Yes, it was, it was a very difficult time. In your day, the USA dominated tennis, but in more recent years, players from poorer European countries have had a lot of success. Do you think that's about them being hungry to win? And do you think perhaps winning too much prize money too young could make some players less ambitious? Wow, that's a, that's a hefty question. Um, I just think with the prize money becoming so great, a lot of players thought of it as an opportunity. And, and yes, the work ethic I, uh, of a lot of players from those countries have talked about the, the special work ethic that's needed in order to, to make it to the top. And they had that, that the extra motivation. I also think it's just become more of an international game where you have players from every part of the world. At the beginning of pro tennis, it was dominated by, you know, the the Australians, the U.S. and and the Brits, with a few other countries sprinkled sprinkled in. But now it's from almost every country in, in the world. This Serena and Venus, they really brought an extraordinary power to tennis. Did you welcome that? Or did you prefer the slower, more graceful tennis of your day? No, I think every every era, you add something and the tennis is improved. And without a doubt, Venus and Serena brought the power to the game and made everybody else follow in line and spend more time in the gym, become more athletic, become faster. You know, Venus and Serena were really the first ones that could hit winners from a defensive position they were you know they had so much power so even if they were on the full stretch and on the run and they could come up with a winner so big first really huge servers so yes power they brought power tennis to the forefront venus and serena were talked about you know the la area is a hotbed for tennis so many champions have come out of the area and obviously it's where venus and serena you know, grew up, but all of a sudden became a buzz about these two young girls who were so good and were beating everybody, how much talent they had. You know, Richard talked about how great Venus was, but the little one, he said, was going to be even better. So it was, it was fun to see them play and to, to really grow up before my very eyes. I had my own charity tournament in the South Bay where I live, and Venus and Serena came and, and competed and, and played in that also. So I really saw them a number of times a year, and every time I saw them, whether it was every three months, every five months, they had improved in a big way. You know, so it was, it was really fun to see right from the first days of, of their tennis career, see how good they were, and now I've called so many finals, even their finals at Wimbledon for BBC. Who, in your opinion, is the greatest female tennis player ever? I'm going to have to go with Serena because, oh. uh, you know, Serena's at 23 majors right now. She's trying to, tar- to tie Margaret Court. She has, I believe, maybe 14 doubles, yeah. you know, with Venus. I-, I can't remember exactly how many. She's got the gold medal in the Olympics, singles and doubles. She's won a couple in mixed doubles. Um, and, you know, she's longevity, I think, is part of it also. She's still playing at, at 39. She's 39. How often do you reflect on the fact that you could have been the best ever had you not been beset by injuries? Yeah, I, I 
You know, I don't. Um, I think it's not healthy to, to, to kind of think about that too much because that's actually, you know, it, it is hard on me to think about how, you know, what could have happened in my, my 20s because my career was, was cut short. So I just appreciate the time that I have, realize that there are so many young ladies that, you know, want to have been number one. And so I think that's, that's healthier for me. Your wedding day in 1993, where does this rank in terms of great days in your life? Um, right at the top. Oh. Uh, yeah, right at the top. This was at uh, the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills, California. Married my husband, Scott Holt. Yeah. So it was April 17th, 1993. We've been married 28 years now and have three boys. The most important thing in my life, in my world, because, uh, you know, I mean, Scott is unbelievable husband, and, and, you know, supportive, the love of my life. He's an incredible dad to our three sons and just makes me laugh every day, which is the most important thing. After tennis, there's a whole life to live. And my life has, has been completely blessed because, because, you know, marrying Scott and the life that we've been able to create. So when and how did you meet him? That's a funny one. I was in that car accident that I said, and uh, about three weeks later, I was watching the men's tournament in L.A., the men's ATP tournament in the stands, and uh, we met at, at the tournament. What, he was a spectator? Tennis brought us together. Huh? He was a spectator or, or what? He was a spectator, yes, and I was there on, on crutches. I had had knee surgery from my car accident. My, my, the bone in my knee was crushed, so I had screws in my knee, so I was, was actually on, on crutches there. So did he come over and sympathize or help you or something? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a long story. A friend of mine, we nutshell. had noticed him, and so a friend of mine went over and started talking to him. <laughs> and, and what does he do for a living? What's his job? He's in real estate. And how well does he play tennis? Uh, very well. We're just about the same level. And what do your three sons up to then? Uh, My oldest is Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N. Named after Bob? And he, no, just like the name. <laughs> Although the, everybody in our family does love Bob Dylan. Me but uh, it probably didn't hurt that, that it kind of pushed us over that we liked that name, but it was, wasn't after Bob Dylan. Okay. So Dylan is 25 and he is in private equity real estate. Our next one is Brandon. Brandon was a top college player in the United States, graduated last year, and is now playing pro tennis. And our youngest one is Sean. S oh, I should tell you, they all went to USC University. They all went to the college in the States. Yeah, yeah, Dylan graduated from USC, Brandon graduated from USC, and our youngest, Sean, is now a sophomore at USC, playing on the tennis team. And how keen were you for them to go into tennis? You know, what's interesting is I think um, I'm very proud of the fact that we let them play all the sports and let them decide. They played basketball, they played what you we call soccer, what you call it football, yeah. but we call it, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, they played basketball, baseball, soccer, you know, basically lacrosse, almost every sport, tennis, a little bit of golf, almost every sport except for uh, hockey and, and football with the helmets crashing each other yeah. and then they decided what sports what sport they wanted to play and, and they all the last one standing was tennis for each of them 
And how much have you wished you had a daughter? Oh, I would have loved to have had a daughter. Mm. But I, I mean, I'm crazy about my three sons, but sure. I mean, I think everybody, everybody would love to have a daughter. And you were a very tough competitor. What have you been like as a mother? Um, I think, I think I'm a, a very reasonable mom. I, I take a lot of that from my own mom. And try to see, you know, everything as far as developing happy kids that are centered and, you know, enjoying their lives at the, at the end of the day, trying to make sure that they're doing well in school, but not pushing them, you know, playing their sports, making sure that they have enough friends, you know, just a very kind of balanced life with the ability to, you know, be fair and be kind to others. 1995, we think, the Thurman Munson Awards with John McEnroe. Spending so much time of your life in tennis gear, how much do you relish a chance to dress up like this? It was always fun to be to be able to, you know, to dress up and do your hair and do your makeup and and not be sweaty. Sure, it was uh, it was fun, and and I, Evander Holyfield got got an award for the Thurman Munson Award, and I, I think that that's just a light moment between John and I. And, you know, going back to Wimbledon 77 was my first Wimbledon where I lost to Chris in the third round. It was his first Wimbledon where he lost to Jimmy Connors in the semis. Both kind of made a splash that year. And then we won the 79 U.S. Open was our first major that we won at, at, at the same time. And then, you know, years we've been doing the television together, where whether it was for USA Network in, in the United States or BBC. At the time, what did you honestly think of his many volatile outbursts on court, Tracy? <laughs> um, I thought it was funny. It was so opposite of my personality. We could not have been more opposite where I was more quiet and, and, uh, and John just, just let it rip. So I, I thought it, was, it made it intriguing. You, know, you, wanted, you gravitated to watching him because his style was... Uh, so athletic and so creative, and you're waiting for the, for the next outburst. How surprised are you he didn't win more Grand Slam singles titles than he did, considering his mm. incredible talent? Yeah, well, he won, what, was it eight? Seven. Seven, mm. yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because now players are playing rough at 35, nobody even blinks an eye at, at his age, and at that time, you know, I think John retired. He was in his late 20s, and it seemed quite normal. Mm. So I think he had an outrageously fantastic career. Seven majors is hard. Those are That's hard to win, seven majors. I agree. And he won. He was playing doubles at the same time with Peter Fleming, as you know. Yes, of course. So he, he won nine. Just, a, just a, a sensational career. And had your career not ended prematurely, how many more slam singles titles do you think you'd have won? No idea. I mean, that's so hypothetical. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about Monica Sellers as well. I mean, how many more she would have won had she not been... Yeah, she was on a roll, that's for sure. Yeah, she was incredible. Like you, John McEnroe, he's gone on to be a great commentator on tennis. How natural a progression was that for you? And how, how much did it make up for the loss of the fact you couldn't play anymore? Or has it always been frustrating? Yeah, no, it was... It was Fantastic. I'm very appreciative to have a, a second career like that because I 
love tennis. I still play three or four times a week now. Ooh. And the, the ability to to go and, and fly to these Grand Slams and be part of the, seeing, you know, the best players play and seeing the draws unfold and who's going to be the winner and, and analyzing and talking about and dissecting matches is something that I really, really enjoy. I mean, it was, it's something that, as a player, I, I really liked. I, I wasn't going to overpower you, but I was going to outmaneuver you. I was going to outsmart you. And so I, I needed that capability in order to win matches, and, and that's, I think, helpful in, in commentary. And of all the superstars you've met, who's impressed you the most? And that's hard to pick one. I mean, for very, I don't really want to pick one. I mean, I feel blessed in my life to have met so many, whether it's presidents or, or superstars or you know other athletes. Uh, you know, to meet people that are at the, at the top of their profession, so you know that they put in the hours, the long, the hard work, uh, and most of them are just so brilliant and uh, you know great minds. It's it's really been a blessing and, and quite a journey. So you've never got lost for words at meeting anybody? No, no, you know, I, I was invited to the Queen's yacht in 1983, Britannia. I don't know if you remember, it came into the Long Beach Harbor and uh, I was invited on board. I had to go by myself, so I think I was, at the time, 21. And so I'll, I'll never forget exactly what I wore, meeting Prince Philip, meeting the Queen, and just seeing her yacht. So things like that are, are just such an added bonus to, you know, having one, having been a, a, a top tennis player. Is there anyone you've always wanted to meet but have never got the chance? Mm, gosh, that's, let me think about that for a minute. I mean, I'm, I could probably give you a list of ten, but I can't think of anybody at the moment. I remember okay, seeing Paul McCartney at Wimbledon once. He walked past me, as did Johnny Carson. <laughs> Yeah, Johnny Carson I've met. I was on the Johnny Carson show when I was 14. So that was that was a little bit intimidating. I don't know how, ma how many, how long my answers were. <laughs> but um, he loved tennis. He had a court in his backyard in Malibu. So I, I have just met, you know, you say a person, I've met so many people, I feel lucky. To what extent is Wimbledon always special, even magical to you? Well, and walking through those gates, you feel the history. This is the same club and the same center court that, say, you know, Don Budge and and Maureen Conley, you know, competed at that same center court. So it's it. You feel the history and you see the beauty as far as the ivy-covered walls and so many hydrangeas and flowers everywhere. And that's the club that's so gorgeous, but it's also in a neighborhood where you, you, you look up behind behind and you see St. Mary's Church and all of the trees in, in the beautiful town of Wimbledon. So it's, it's uh, you definitely feel it, and when you walk from the locker room down the stairs into the waiting room, you know, you're already nervous enough, but now you're going into the Wimbledon waiting room, you know, waiting to go on center court, and no, no other tournament you walk out and it's you're you're not announced. You know, every other tournament it's and we've got you know world number X Tracy Austin. This is what they've done. This you just walk out on to, to center court and it's quiet and there's applause. I love this moment right here with Sue Sue Barker. First of all, former top four in, in the world in yeah. tennis, and, and 
I mention that because I think Sue is the best in the business at, at what she does. She yeah. does an incredible job for BBC. And she is such a help that she was a top-level level player because she understands what the player might be going through. So it's, it's so easy. It's seamless. She's on all day long, Sue. Yeah. And it, it's seamless. It's so natural for her to talk about the scores or break down matches or have someone jump into the studio and... and she can do an interview off on the fly. She makes it all look very easy. And then Lindsay is a, a really good friend of mine. Oh. We actually grew up in the same town here in California. So this moment right here is always right before the finals. And they put us in this position right behind center court. On the opposite end, the players, the finalists, will be walking in with their rackets and with their big flower bouquet. You know, the crowd will go wild. Then they'll start the warm-up, and that little, little net behind us will often catch the balls from serves that are being practiced You know, on, in, during the warm-up. And then our interview stops about 30 seconds before the match will start, and, you know, we'll go into the booth and, and call the match. And what's been your favorite moment as a commentator? I think calling Wimbledon finals, you know, because we're in this place here right before the finals and it's about an hour before we are talking live in the build-up to the finals right where the umpire's chair is on the side and all of that is such an exciting moment because for example when Serena Williams is going to be playing Simona Halep Serena had won at Wimbledon I think seven times Simona Halep had never won and so you're trying to break down the odds of who you think is going to win you know Serena looked to be the heavy favorite and then you have Simona Halep who came out and played, I think she made three unforced errors and made, uh, you know, just played the match of her life to, to beat Serena in the finals. And Simona's reaction to being so excited to wear the member, member's pin immediately. And, sure. and, you know, you just felt like that day just uh, solidified everything in her career. She'd won the French before, but I think Wimbledon was less expected for her. I know we kind of touched on this earlier, but for how many years as a tennis commentator did you wish you were still playing? I think once once my career was over and I became a commentator, I, I you don't you're not in the same mindset. In order to be an athlete, you get up every day and the total focus on your training and what you're improving and what you're working on and you know your time spent in the gym. That's where your your effort is, and you don't have that same impetus to train so that was uh not difficult for me once once my career was over and i transitioned into to be a commentator it was a, it was a new life okay i'll take you forward now when will we see a british champion again male or female at wimbledon well now you're getting greedy because we got we got andy um not cheesy um it's been a few years sadly and i don't think he's going to win another one is he he's, he's too uh no, but I think we should really relish that, the, oh, that what he's done. 2016? Yep. And 13. Yep. Yeah. He was fantastic. No, we absolutely adore him, don't get me wrong, but uh, we're just wondering where the next one will come from, because there doesn't seem to be any knocking at the door, especially the women. Well, it's not, it's not easy to knock on the door. There's only, there's only one. And as I said before, it's so much more, it's international, so it's... Uh, it's very difficult even to break into the top 100, let alone the top 10, and, and then you're talking to Wimbledon champion. So 
I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I wish I did. We're struggling ourselves over here in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not easy. No. You know, it, it gets quite crowded. It, it, it gets quite crowded. You're talking about the creme de la creme as far as athleticism and, and movement and the ability to stay calm under pressure. It, it, it takes a, a lot of pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. Just to round up on you, though, what do you want to achieve for the rest of your life? Achieve? My goodness. Um, what, what are your remaining dreams? Oh, gosh. I don't think I have too many set and hard, fast goals now. I, I'm just enjoying my, my children and my time. Uh, I enjoy my commentary. I enjoy playing tennis. I work out, but I don't push myself in, in any area like I used to. So I'm just, I think I'm just in a really good, solid place. I don't feel this, the same drive that I did before, and I'm, an, and I'm okay with that. It's, it's, it's all good. In hopefully many decades to come, how would you like to be remembered after you leave this planet? Uh, first as a good mom, uh, an excellent wife, and a fantastic tennis player. Excellent. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and I really appreciate your time. Okay. Well, well thank you, Peter. Time. We'll thank talk you. soon. Bye-bye.